for me, the perfect storm is recognizing what they knew in 1939. There were three legs to the stool. So there's the physiology that the person is either hardwired and born with or acquires. There's the physical. There's the emotional or personality or learned history of the person, the emotional. So now you have physical and emotional. People confuse the word spiritual or spirituality, but it really means a sense of purpose outside of yourself. Food Addiction is a podcast which explores the disease of food addiction and presents the solution. We interview professionals and counselors who specialize in the disease of food addiction, and we interview individuals who have successfully recovered from food addiction and discuss how they did it. Esther Helga Goodmans-Dotier was motivated to change careers after she recovered from food addiction by opening a food addiction treatment center and the INFACT school the world's first and only sugar and food addiction counseling training, which offers a recognized certification. Check out the website for more information on obtaining this certification, as well as proven recovery programs at infactschool.com. Listen to these episodes as we discuss the problem and the solution around food addiction. I'm Susan Branscombe. I am a recovered food addict. Today I have with me Marty Lerner of Milestones in Recovery. Marty, I'm excited to host you today on the Food Addiction Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. This is going to be a great podcast. I'm going to um, introduce you and ask you some questions and uh, we'll go into the problem and the solution. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Marty Lerner is founder and CEO of Milestones in Recovery, eating disorder program located in Hollywood, Florida, which he began in 1999. He is a graduate of Nova Southeastern University and is a licensed and board-certified clinical psychologist who has specialized in the treatment of eating disorders since 1980. As the intro in the podcast states, our guests on the Food Addiction Podcast include recovered food addicts as well as professionals who specialize in the treatment of food addiction. Dr. Lerner is a professional treating food addiction with milestones in recovery and other substance use disorders such as anorexia and bulimia are treated. He's appeared on numerous national television and radio programs including the NPR Report, 2020, Discovery Health, and ABC's Nightline. Dr. Lerner has also authored several publications relating to eating disorders in the professional literature, national magazines, and newspapers, including USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Dr. Lerner wrote a book, which I read, A Guide to Eating Disorder Recovery, Defining the Problem and Finding the Solution. So very much a parallel between the book and our, and our podcast, and it's excellent. Um, I'll describe milestones in recovery from your website and uh, from your book. You provide a comfortable setting and practical approach to treatment that offers people an opportunity to learn and practice the skills necessary to begin and maintain eating disorder recovery. Milestone's primary purpose is to provide a comprehensive program to address the specific needs of individuals suffering from eating disorders and the issues often accompanying them. Providing a safe, structured, and effective course of treatment, the facility offers apartment-style residences, on-site support, and multi-specialty team of licensed professionals. The program also offers 
residential stays and outpatient treatment levels of care. Milestones is uh, a therapeutic community whose mission is to provide a healthy, safe, and more sustainable lifestyle, many refer to as the lifestyle of recovery. The program follows a blended approach to treatment addressing both addictive and emotional aspects of eating disorders. They seek to provide a more supportive and structured experience in a less restrictive and real-world setting. And your your uh, website is milestonesprogram.org. So welcome again, Marty. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to have an opportunity to talk on this subject. Yeah, I am too. It's going to be uh, very informative, I think, to our listeners. I'm going to quote some things from your book. And there are several statements here, but I'd like you to address all of mm-hmm. them if you can. And Sure. You say in your book, um, addiction is a complex interaction between substances and individuals, and you say eating disorders are initiated in an attempt to avoid or change uncomfortable feelings, usually negative feelings and emotional states. And eating disorders are best measured by the degree of one's relationship with food, dieting, and body image, and robs a person of a life worth living. And then finally, you say, we recognize addictions and compulsions are often misguided attempts to control or manage our feelings, such as being scared, angry, hurt. We use food. So there's a lot there to unpack, but I thought it would be a great introduction to to start out our discussion. Yeah, um, there are a lot of components to that um, quote or statement. So let me begin by breaking down a few things here. First off... um, In my experience, uh, despite some of the professional literature, probably the least accurate or effective way to define, measure, or identify someone with an eating disorder is what they look like. And I would make that analogy to uh, uh, include alcoholism, drug addiction, etc. So the assumption that someone with um, food addiction or an eating disorder or alcoholism or or drug addiction fits a certain stereotype really needs to be dispelled. Specific to food addiction and eating disorders, um, uh, we treat people uh, with all the flavors of eating disorders, whether you call it food addiction, bulimia, anorexia, um, binge eating disorder, and they come in small, medium, large, and extra large sizes. So condensing that into a simple sentence, I would say to you that um, the poorest way to define an eating disorder is what somebody weighs. The second piece uh, to that statement is uh, someone who uh, I admire, whose uh, uh, work has been a cornerstone in in what we would call 12-step or recovery uh, parlance is, is Carl Jung, a very famous psychoanalyst who studied under our friend Sigmund. In any case, uh, Carl was uh, credited with making this statement, all neurotic behavior is an attempt to avoid legitimate suffering. And I've taken that over the years to mean that um, all addictive behavior is an attempt to avoid legitimate suffering. And then specific to food addiction and uh, many forms of eating disorders, all eating disorders and Food addiction is an attempt to avoid legitimate suffering. And uh, that statement, I think, is an apt one that would uh, be the shoe proverbially fitting most people that suffer with these disorders. Um, And lastly, then the description of uh, milestones and how we go about treating this, which will 
be a little bit more specific about later on in this podcast. The idea is is to know the nuances and differences between these specific disorders or addictions and ones that involve substances like alcohol and drugs, most notably that the people we see do not, A, need to be shamed, B, need to be in an environment that treats them as an adult with compassion and support rather than being uh, very restrictive uh, and uh, uh, much like uh, uh environments that treat alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a broad statement, but it gives you the flavor of uh, how we uh, provide a setting for people that's safe and structured, but not restrictive mm-hmm. so they can recover um, and begin their their journey. Yeah. What I hear you saying are a couple of things. One is just because somebody may be 50, 80 pounds overweight doesn't mean they're a food addict. Exactly, yeah. Susan. Look, uh, um, not everybody that is overweight or obese is, is a food addict. Let me frame it that way. Mm-hmm. And not every food addict is overweight. That's a misconception. Yes, there are many people where there's a correlation between having an eating disorder or food addiction and being overweight. Um, but correlation A doesn't mean cause, and it's not a perfect correlation. So Mm -hmm. don't judge the book by its cover. Right. And I know that your uh, milestones in recovery treats various forms of eating disorders. So you have somebody coming in, they may be anorexic, they may, you know, restrict and exercise, you know, excessively. Uh, You may have someone who is a bulimic who vomits and uses laxatives. You might have a binge eater uh, who maybe also identifies as a food addict. So you've got a lot of different types mm-hmm. of uh, people coming in, and I'm sure you have to evaluate them, make sure that you've you've categorized them properly to, for treatment. And then the other thing you say is, you know, not shaming them, not judging them. This is not our fault. You know, I'm a food addict, but I, it took me many years to figure out diets don't work or they work for a while. Right. And that, uh, uh, I, this is not my, I, it's not my fault. And, uh, society tends to shame us for, carrying extra weight. And uh, it's wonderful that you don't judge and don't shame. That's that's the safe, structured part of this, right? Yes. And, yeah. and I think what we're also saying is that, um, as, as was mentioned, um, obesity is not a proxy for food addiction or an eating disorder per se. Um, but I think at this point, it's important to delineate uh, the difference between uh, eating disorders and food addiction and defining those terms and make a note that there's considerable overlap. And mm-hmm. I'm going to use a metaphor um, or an analogy. Um, if you were to go into a, um, an environment where there were recovering alcoholics, you would find a majority of them are cross-addicted and they, they would as easily be uh, uh, qualifying for Narcotics Anonymous or other 12-step fellowships, although their drug of choice, so to speak, might be alcohol. But they certainly um, cannot uh, use um, uh, prescription or illicit drugs with impunity and uh, may harbor other addictive processes because it's the nature of the person, not necessarily the the substance du jour. Um, And with eating disorders and food addiction, the overlap is that many people that suffer with bulimia, uh, some forms of anorexia, certainly binge eating disorder, I would say the majority of people that we see also fit 
the criteria uh, for food addiction, which is basically looking at a cluster of, uh, of substances inherent in certain foods like sugar, flour, and uh, you can go down the list, but mostly high, highly processed, high glycemic foods. And they react to them much like someone who's physically addicted to alcohol, where there's a sensitivity or mm-hmm. um, a uh, structure in them physically where it produces craving and then compulsive behavior in the form of either overconsuming, and we could talk about this later on, uh, an addictive element to getting the same effect from starving or purging. Right. So um, when, you, when you distill all of this, you find uh, a majority of people that are diagnosed as bulimic, anorectic, binge eating disorder, also fit the uh, definition, which is yet to be accepted by the professional community of what we're calling food addiction, which is a physical dependency on food substances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, a quote from your book, and I'll I'll quote it to to allow you to talk more about this. Uh, The food addict may begin abusing food and develop a similar tolerance to refined carbohydrates, sugar, flour, and greater volumes of food, volume eaters which alters the brain reward structure, the dopamine receptors, and the physical addiction to overeating takes hold. So dopamine, talk about that uh, as it relates to food addiction. Sure. And I'll try to keep this, you know, very basic. Um, Mm -hmm. In 1939, a group of people wrote a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And within the book, they described alcoholism as a disease rather than a failure of willpower. And Uh, They identified one of the physical components to alcohol dependency or alcoholism as an allergy. Um, They were very close. Um, Through the last, I'd say, 20 years, and more specifically in the last 10, the technology with uh, PET scans, functional MRIs, and and such has been able to map the brain, both in structure of neural pathways and in terms of the chemicals that produce different feelings uh, of reward, punishment, also can be responsible for some pathologies like depression or anxiety and such, but in particular addiction. So we, we know, when I say we, the American Psychiatric Association and allied professions now recognize, A, that addiction, the generic term, um, is a brain disease, not an allergy. And that the American Psychiatric Association no longer says cocaine addiction versus alcohol dependency versus um, uh, opiate addiction. They now frame it as substance use disorder. So they've put an umbrella and say substances. They're still arguing whether food should be categorized as a process addiction or behavioral versus a substance addiction we're saying, I'm saying, the Food Addiction Institute and a growing contingent of people with this experience are saying this is about a substance use disorder. It's not just a behavioral compulsion. Right. So that said, yeah. um, dopamine specifically is the reward uh, uh, neurochemical, and it is something that is produced when you ingest and sometimes engage in some behaviors that uh, uh, create a feeling of euphoria, reward, or sedation, and it's the feel-good chemical in the human brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, had issues with alcohol um, 
before I'd been sober for 10 years, and then I began using food. So as we say, we switched uh, chairs on the Titanic. I was yep. going down, and, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was choosing yes. another way to do it. And uh, so I have kept off 70 pounds through a recovery program. But you say in the book, uh, more than half the people that you see at Milestones um, not only have issues with food, but are cross-addicted. And uh, and then alcohol, I use that, uh, as I'm sure you see, you see sure. others, to attempt to control my depression, anxiety, and then you cite some other things, obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So we use different things. Uh, sometimes people gamble. Sometimes right. people use other compulsions or addictions to manage their anxiety and depression. But with food addicts, we we use food, right? Right. And I think what you're alluding to is a phenomenon that, that of cross-addiction or sometimes uh, psychologists will call it symptom substitution. Uh, we're framing it as running around the Titanic, uh, hoping not to drown if we position ourselves differently. But it's right. all the same thing. The problem yeah. uh, that exists, but we're starting to solve it, is recognizing that all the substances really have in common addictive properties. So it's, it's yes, there's something about the substance, but it's also the nature of the person. And there's something called sensitivity. I'm going to just cite some of the research that's coming out. For instance, people who suffer with obesity, which can be or may not be a symptom of food addiction, um, seek a solution in a surgical procedure, which now is a gastric sleeve, used to be a, another surgical um, solution. But nonetheless, what we're finding out is in the short run, they um, uh, think they've solved the problem, but they have late onset alcohol dependency. Mm -hmm. So they, they go from being a food addict and self-medicating with food and not anatomically being able to do that as effectively will now switch to another substance. And yeah. then if not the other substance, to another addiction. So what we're talking about is something called sensitivity which argues for the fact that anything that is moon or mind altering is a gateway substance if the nature of the person is an addict. Yes. I will yeah. also say, um, not to be too long-winded, um, yeah. that when you look at food in our culture, it is the first legal sanctioned societal approved substance for children to engage in and so if you take 100 children that are under stress, a percentage of them will start to use food as their primary drug of choice, as we're calling it, because it's legal, it's available, and in many cases, if you had grandparents like mine, it's encouraged. Yes, right. Yeah. I mean, look at food is so pervasive. And we know that obesity, um, as you say, shortens lifespans two to four years. Severe obesity, which I was in this category, shortens life expectancy as much as 10 years. And we know that it leads to heart disease, diabetes, uh, osteoporosis, sleep apnea, and stroke. I had high blood pressure, diabetes. I don't now. I have sleep apnea. I don't now. So, and then you say, you know, as we go out in the world, we need to only look around, you know, um, and see the increasing level of obesity. Uh, you say in the book, uh, one third of adults and 17% of teens and children are obese and it's growing, not just overweight, not just 10 pounds, 20 pounds obese. Yeah. I mean, I walk around, let's say a mall mm -hmm. or public 
venue, and you won't see people in their 70s or 80s that are obese because they're no longer with us. The problem is in the medical literature, what is accounting for that is cardiovascular disease. So in medicine in this country, we tend to pathologize uh, things in terms of end-stage disease. We're looking at the symptoms. We're not looking at the etiology or the cause. And so the cause, you could argue, is obesity, but I would go further and say that the cause is food addiction that leads to obesity and that people who uh, revert to compensatory behaviors like compulsive exercising, self-inducing vomiting, uh, taking diuretics and laxatives are, are trying to control the symptom of appearance or weight, but still are reaping the, um, the deleterious effects of taking in these food substances to excess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of segues into this quote uh, that you have in the book, and you cite a published text by Kelly Brownell and Mark Gold, where right. it said, uh, there appears to be an interaction between the nature of the substance, food, either addictive or non-addictive, and the nature of the person, an addict or a non-addict, which I... I love this because, you know, it's not just the substance. It is the addict brain. It is the nature of the person, like you say, how they're wired. Celery, you know, for example, is not an addictive food. You don't hear celery as being an addictive food, <laughs> but a cinnamon bun, you know, right. with the combination of fat, flour, and sugar. Um, and then you've got the person who is wired to be addicted. So you've got the substance and the addict. So talk about that. Yeah, I refer to that as the perfect storm. And I'd like to give credit to Mark Gold. He, he was around in the 80s uh, before he was recognized. And he was one of the first physicians, psychiatrists, to acknowledge about cross-addiction. And, and um, I know I wrote an article shortly after that about cross-addiction, but I give him credit. And he was specific to the fact that the brain of the person, many people that suffered with cocaine addiction was his specialty, um, also had sensitivity to being cross-addicted or hyperpensity towards developing alcohol dependency, but also gambling and also shopping and also sex. So he, he packaged this generically as the nature of the person's biology, but also the nature of the person. For me, the perfect storm is recognizing what they knew in 1939. There were three legs to the stool. So there's the physiology that the person is either hardwired and born with or acquires. So there's, you know, there's the physical. There's the emotional or personality or learned history of the person, the emotional. So now you have physical and emotional. People confuse the word spiritual or spirituality, but it really means a sense of purpose outside of yourself. So people that tend to be very neurotic, the more neurotic, the most self-preoccupied and self-conscious. Not mm -hmm. that they're bad folks, but that's, that's, that's it. We know that depression, for instance, if you were measuring an EEG, would have the highest level of brain activity. And the reason for that is you're constantly focused on taking your own emotional temperature 
and not concerned with things outside of yourself, mostly people. So spirituality to me means, you know, um, uh, looking at outside of yourself and being um, uh, more prone to having an identity uh, with other people rather than with self or appearance. Mm -hmm. So um, the physical, emotion, and spiritual are the components that Mark was identifying. And now the science is being able to document that by looking with tomography, a proton emission tomography, MRI. And so we're actually seeing these things. So bottom line here is it, it's a three-legged stool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fascinating. We know there's a psychological piece here and a DNA connection, meaning that many that come in that have an addiction, it runs in their families. And uh, my there is a lot of addiction in my family. My dad was an alcoholic and food right. addict. Talk about your experience with milestones and uh, common you know, connections there and any childhood traumas that you're seeing and a propensity sure. to food addiction. Sure. So when we talk about eating disorders and all its 28 flavors, as they would say, um, there are some common elements where you can break down subgroups of people that are predisposed uh, towards addiction. For instance, I'll use the analogy again of an alcoholic. Some people are born from the get-go mostly because of genetic predisposition and the way they metabolize the chemical ETOH or or alcohol. And it's synthesized in the body differently than someone that doesn't have that as a genetic link. However, the other person can acquire alcohol dependency by developing that, by abusing, using, abusing, and then becoming dependent. So there are different in ways to get to the same city and different routes. Um, with, with food addiction and eating disorders, there is a correlation genetically with predisposition. We don't know yet how to predict who will become eating disordered or not. And we know that in research, correlation doesn't mean cause. But there is, um, you know, there's, there was for many, many years a correlation between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And that was enough evidence to get most sane people to quit cigarettes. Well, there's there's definitely a correlation between sugar addiction <laughs> and genetics. Um, uh, there's a genetic correlation between obesity, the symptom, and, and genetics. There's definitely a correlation between uh, addiction in the generic sense with substances, alcohol and drugs, uh, and offspring. So um, uh, propensity... Um, or, or you know, the the uh, correlation is predictive, but it's not necessarily a fait complete. Mm-hmm. So, if if two parents are alcoholic and they're in recovery, doesn't automatically mean their offspring will become alcoholic, but they do have a increased vulnerability to that. Yeah. So, um, the moral of the story with that analogy is: take your kids to meetings. i've seen kids in meetings (laughs) yeah of course what could Um, hurt (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna hit the solution here but before we do there are a couple of things i wanted to talk about and uh one is the sugar industry the food industry big pharmaceuticals uh so i know you have a a strong opinion here and you know it just uh when I really think about this, it's infuriating to me. It's like subterfuge. Yes. It is conspiracy. 
there are billions, trillions of dollars at stake here, okay? And you just need to uh-huh. look at the label. Now, in my in the program of recovery I work, I can't eat sugar if it's uh, unless it's fifth or beyond on Correct. the ingredients label. And mm-hmm. I saw that in some of your literature, but words like dextrose, corn syrup, honey, sugar is disguised as other things. And it's in many, many foods. It's an additive. It's not a, it's not a food itself. So ta- we're going to talk about um, the food industry, beverages, uh, big pharma, companies like PepsiCo, Kraft, Kellogg's. Sure. These are companies with a strong financial interest. And you say in the book, as yeah. evidence expands, the science of addiction could become a, gr- a game changer for the $1 trillion food and beverage industry. Right. So talk about that. Okay. Well, this could be a separate podcast in and of itself. But let me give you a personal experience, and then let me give you what the facts are. Um, And I'll preface this by saying I'm not a conspiracy theory enthusiast. I don't think one political party uh, consumes babies, um, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I will say this. um, In the I'm dating myself, but in in the uh, early 70s, Weight Watchers, which was a diet program, was owned by someone named Gene Neidich. And that company was sold to Pillsbury, which is a big company, and is now owned um, uh, by Oprah Winfrey. So there's a whole chronology of uh, the business end of that. But I was hired um, because I was doing research um, on obesity and then, of course, ended up doing research in food addiction and eating disorders. So I was hired to be part of this think tank. And I was paid a nice sum of money for someone that was still in graduate school. And they had a food processing person there, a behavioral uh, scientist, me, um, and other people, housewife, et cetera. And we were locked in a room, so to speak, for 24 hours and had all these paper whiteboard things. They didn't have computers then. Um, And we, we were assigned a project for Weight Watchers to come up with ideas on how they can market their product better. Hmm. What came out of the meeting, if you remember in the 70s, birth control pills came out and there was an epidemic of divorces because women were free from the fear of becoming pregnant, you know, outside of the marriage or mm-hmm. or in the marriage, etc. So it was a movement probably overall for the good for women to become more uh, egalitarian with with men. Okay. So but you had men that were divorced and single going to the supermarkets. And, and uh, of course, a sidebar to that is hungry people make poor shoppers in relationships yeah. and in the supermarket. Anyway, these men would not put Weight Watchers frozen foods in their soup, in their, in their basket. They wanted to lose weight because they had dad bods, but they were <laughs> embarrassed to put pink. It was packaged in pink. So one of the things that came out of the meeting is moi suggested package it in a neutral color, which became purple. So to this day, it's all purple. Purple's a neutral, gender neutral color. The second thing came out from a a woman, a housewife, which had a brilliant idea. She said, instead of making diet food, package regular food with half portions. So they they put Sara Lee's cheesecake, you know, at the portion meant for like a mouse, you know, and, and so they were putting in less food and making more money in purple packages. Mm. The reason I tell you this is the food industry, and rightfully so, is there to make money. And one of the things that happened um, is, um, again, in the 70s, 
tobacco industry in the United States had to ship their poison over to third world countries. But they owned all this real estate in, in you know, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, no coincidence, et cetera, et cetera. Tobacco. So they went to bed with, by merging with Nabisco, and they started growing sugarcane. And they started the same playbook that they used for tobacco, which was marketing to children. So when you look at a package of cereal, A, it's at eye level for the child in a basket. They think of that. They also think of marketing something called bliss foods, which is salt, sugar, and fat. Snack foods have those three ingredients, and they test them so that they're exactly going to mess with your brain chemistry. And so the same marketing process to get people hooked on tobacco, that playbook is being used in the sugar industry. And there was an article that I kept in the book that I got permission to uh, quote and paraphrase from Bloomberg in 2010, talking about how this all transpired. So, um, yes, there's, there, there's a marketing effort to get people addicted to sugar. Yeah. And I think, I don't know what, you can call it conspiracy or whatever, but there is a huge monetary interest for PepsiCo, Kraft, and Kellogg for uh, people to be addicted to sugar, you know. I was addicted no, no to question. sugar, and yeah, there's no question about it in in my mind uh, that uh, there is there is uh, and and sugar will be the tobacco perhaps of the um, of the next uh, next ten years. I mean, we, we see the obesity, we see the uh, mm-hmm. obesity related illnesses. So, except Susan, what you're doing today, and what some other folks are doing is trying to shift the tide, and that's exactly what happened with tobacco because of phenomenon called consensual validation. If everybody's doing it, it must be okay. So in the (laughs) 40s and 50s, you had physicians in white lab coats smoking cigarettes, touting the benefits of camels. And now you have Olympic athletes touting the benefits of Oreo cookies. And you guys are trying to change the tide. Right. Let's let's talk uh, before we go into the solution. Let's spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about the DSM five. Uh, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is a diagnostic tool published mm. by the American Psychiatric Association. It is the gold standard on mental health and influences on how disorders are investigated, diagnosed, and treated, including addiction. And the DSM five is the fifth edition. I think there's a DS. M6 out there, but there are movements afoot, um, and I'm on the board of the Food Addiction Institute with Esther Helga Goodman-Stotier, um, to have food and food addiction recognized as a substance use disorder. And Esther, with her In Fact School podcast here, um, has told me that the folks at the APA cannot deny the evidence is here before them. So talk about this approach for a couple of minutes before we right. dive into the solution. So let me preface this response by saying that this is this is intended to be apolitical. In other words, okay. not political. One has to understand that the insurance industry has shifted in the last 20 years and even more so in the last 10. And the insurance industry has slowly but surely dictated what's acceptable treatment rather than the professional community dictating what's appropriate treatment. So there's an economic lobby 
um, and and there's a dog in the fight that uh, exists with bodies that are defining what insurers acknowledge our disease processes and therefore treatments and therefore what they are willing to pay for. Food addiction is not recognized as a legitimate term or illness in the professional community, except by a minority of people, but they will not get reimbursed for it because it's considered a psychiatric illness and food addiction is more aligned with the um, effects of, a, of these chemical dependencies to the ingredients of certain foods. So what's happening with the movement, if you will, or the people that are, in my bias, awakening to the fact that food addiction is separate, although overlaps with the bona fide eating disorders, it has more properties of a substance use disorder or addiction than it does of emotional or psychiatric elements. So if it were categorized as a substance use disorder, it would mean that monies would be delegated uh, to its treatment um, and more people could get help, but that would be of cost to the insurance industry. And you have to realize in our country, the insurance industry, there are exceptions, but most managed care companies that represent insurance uh, industries, they get to keep what they don't spend. Yeah, here, here's my here's my follow up question to you though. The insurance in- industry, it would seem to me, it would be cheaper to help people that have food addictions so they don't have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and all of that. Uh, rather, they're paying for that. For they're paying for the medications, they're paying for the treatment, the the surgeries. Isn't it cheaper to have somebody treated than to continue to treat them for obesity? Anybody that's been in this field that's treating this knows that's absolutely true. However, let's go back to the cigarettes and the tobacco industry. They argued that correlation isn't causation. And, And then they said, until you give us the data, until you prove through our methods that it would save money to take the labels off and do, you know, all the things that they've done through today, we don't need to change. And so um, you didn't have the insurance industry paying for Nicorette and, and, and uh, patches and programs until they got the proof that they would save money. Now, they may believe they'll save money, but they're looking at quarter to quarter profits. They're not looking 10 years out. Yeah. They're not long-term thinkers. So, so you're up against way. an imperfect system. And, you know, again, not to be political, you know, there's lots of problems with our system, but it's better than some other systems that are out there. But the reality is that if you wait for the government or industry or business uh, to uh, remedy this, you, you know, you, you have a long fight. So you're yeah. going to have to have the data and the science to back up the experience. It won't fly with anecdotal um, uh, uh, data. Well, the Food Addiction Institute is working on it, among others. I know some other names in the industry. Uh, You know some of them, too, that are 
working toward this, so uh, let's hope. Um, now we're going to move into the solution. We've talked about the problem. Uh, it would be nice if we had a couple of hours to, to talk about the problem, but uh, we want to make sure our listeners hear about the solution, too. Okay. Uh, so not just the physical part of this, but uh, the emotional, mental recovery. Uh, sure. So let's start with the food. Um, you say in the book, uh, the first step in recovery is recognizing the importance of abstaining from offending substance and uh, the offending substance and behaviors and that those of a disease eating disorder may need to consider a food plan, which does not invoke physical craving. Um, and the dependency, like chips, cookies, cereal, um, some of my old favorites, uh, but more like whole foods, carrots, cauliflower, right? Right. Well, there are two people I would like to acknowledge that are providing the science behind what we're going to talk about. Okay. Um, one is, is Ashley Gerhardt, yes. and the other is Kelly Brown. They've identified and are trying to find assessment scales to identify the specific trigger elements and food substances and match them to people so that they have a better idea of what they need to abstain from. So the broad stroke that we found through experience and, and some of the research is that sugar in its many forms um, is the number one offender. Yes. Under that is time-release sugar in the form of white flour or very refined flour products. There are people that also need to abstain from some grains or grains, other people, and we can go down a list of foods. So identifying as an individual what substances trigger a physiological response that is experienced as a craving or yeah. compulsion. It's like scratching an itch where, where despite the best of intentions, your willpower is not going to be a long-lasting remedy the solution is abstinence. With alcohol, it's rather black and white unless you rationalize drinking, you know, nitol because you can't sleep. But for the most part, you know, you just don't drink. Um, with drugs, <clears throat> prescription versus illicit, you need to be a little bit more careful because of all the back doors that you can rationalize. But it's still a lot easier than food products. And everything converts to glucose and glycogen in the body. So it's, it's also on a glycemic scale, not to get complicated. You need to make sure that sugar and it's all its cousins and disguises and, and you know, um, imposters um, uh, are no more than the fifth ingredient in any food product. So um, uh, that's the number one offender uh, um, in this. And um, without abstaining from that, you can do all other things, work on the psychiatric, the emotional, uh, the diets and everything else. You probably will be just chasing your tail around. Um, yeah. It's like an alcoholic trying to work a 12-step program while they're drinking beer instead of scotch. Yeah. Well, with alcohol, like you say, it's either you're drinking or you're not. With, with food addiction, uh, it's said in my recovery, I've heard it said that you let the tiger out of the cage three or five times a day, depending on how many times you eat. You mm -hmm. know, and so um, talk about, let's talk about food plans. Uh, I dieted for 43 years. I was great at losing weight. I had great willpower. Mm -hmm. You have a dietitian at Milestones, and in the book, uh, you talk about the 
abuse of compulsive behaviors with food, uh, removing self-destructive foods. And our bodies are meant to be nourished with food. Uh, that There's really no other reason for food other than to nourish your body. But it gets so complicated in food addiction because we get, we get a buzz, you know, we get a, we right. get a hit, you know, with certain mm-hmm. foods. And um, in my, and I'll t- I can talk about my food addiction briefly, or this is your podcast, but talk about food plans and your dietitian and what you, what you help your clients with. Right. So as we've all heard before, words matter. And there's a lot of semantics, um, but they need to be defined. There's a big difference between a food plan and a diet. I'm going to oversimplify this, but diets are intended to manipulate your body and are temporary, um, and usually are not realistic for for you know for the most part being long term or lifelong. Um, even though, like an alcoholic will say, one day at a time, the real notion behind that is they can never drink alcohol safely. And a food addict needs to be on a food plan with certain boundaries. It needs to be somewhat dynamic because we change over time, our physical needs, our volume needs, our caloric needs, whatever. But a food plan um, is like a life jacket and, and a suit of clothing. It needs to be comfortable and sometimes it's tailored, but basically if it's a straight jacket like a diet, it won't work long term. It, 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 that's not what the spirit behind um, uh, someone who's a dietitian working with uh, in alliance with someone that's a food addict. It's to figure out what's safe, what's realistic, and what's comfortable so that over time people go through three stages. And I'll tell you what I think they are. The first stage, you're on a food plan and it feels like a diet because you're not eating everything you want to eat which is usually addictive substances. So in the first stage, you're doing it um, out of a lot of discipline and support, maybe working a program and trying to cultivate something outside of yourself to help you. In the second stage, in the middle stage, it's not terrible, but it's not your preference. You know, you see other people eating things that you wish you could eat. It's kind of like being diabetic and, and not accepting that you're physically and mentally different than somebody else. But you're a little bit grudgingly, but it's not killing you the way the first stage was. The third stage I, I can identify with, and that is you're doing it not because you have to, not because it's good for you, because you like it better than the way you feel when you're not doing it. Yeah. And that's exactly what, what recovery from alcohol is. In the first stage, boy, I wish I could drink. Uh, in the second stage, gee, I wish I could have Chardonnay. Look at that. You know, you're at a nice restaurant, but you're not jonesing for it and climbing the walls. In the third stage, you hardly notice that, but you don't, you know, you would rather not drink than drink. Right. And and that's where you need to get to an end-stage recovery because everybody talks about end-stage addiction, and you have to understand that there's end-stage recovery. Right. And I, what I hear you saying, and I experience both with my stopping drinking and stopping eating, that the first six months were the toughest. I was detoxifying mm-hmm. from getting the substance right. out. And I was like, what am I doing? I really want to eat. I really want to drink. But then the life I have now you know, yeah, of course. Is, is not something I would ever want to go back and have that life, you know. 
Right. And Susan, I didn't mention this, but I'm sure you know this. Alcohol, when it gets to your stomach, changes with one carbon ring and becomes pure sugar. Alcohol is fermented sugar. It reverses the process when it hits your body. So the correlation or the crossover between alcoholics and food addiction is humongous. So if you were to go to an open AA meeting or close one, if you qualify, you'll see people drinking coffee and eating donuts and, and symptom of which may be gaining weight because they're using the food to do what the alcohol did. It's just more subtle. Yeah, no, that's what I did. I, like I say, I went to food and my weight got up to 203 pounds and now I'm free of sugar for six and a half years and uh, I don't crave it anymore. So it's wonderful. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about recovery, uh, the emotional part of this. Uh, You Mm -hmm. say in the book, uh, and I love this, recovery is about transcending our need to fix how we feel and doing the next right thing, no matter how we're feeling. And like you had inferred earlier that uh, pretty soon we, uh, I loved your, your talk about the neurotic, uh, you know, the thinker, we're, we're thinkers, we right. think, 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 what about me, what about me? And the program of recovery uh, gets us out of uh, the me, me, me stuff and, and gets us to realize, you know, what we've done. So once we put the food down and when we put the sugar down and we have a food plan, um, we start dealing with our feelings. And uh, so why we were using food, we talk about causes and conditions. Why was I using food? All right, now now an emotional wreck. I'm feeling all this stuff. What do right. I do with it? So talk about that. That's that's another full podcast, but I'll, yeah. I'll try and condense <laughs> okay. it. Oh my God. In two minutes or less, Marty. <laughs> all right. Well, here's the deal. Um, when you self-medicate, you're using food or another substance as a form of anesthesia. When you come out okay. of anesthesia, you know, you start to feel the pain. So in this, in this sense, we're, we're saying emotional pain. So if every time you felt up to a certain threshold of anxiety or you were triggered to a memory, let's say you were on a date or something where you were, had trauma and you were uh, sexually assaulted you know, years ago, that could be triggered or, or you reach a threshold with anger, um, et cetera, et cetera. If your go-to has been a substance or a behavior, you know, that, that's going to come to the forefront more readily. And so what happens is your tolerance for discomfort is like a window that's very narrow. And with recovery and, you know, and time and not reacting, that window will widen so that going outside to a parking lot and seeing a flat tire is not a three alarm fire. And, and, and so in the interim, what's happening emotionally um, is that that you're needing some help and support and guidance and all the tools you can marshal to not go back to the substance or, uh, you know, or the behaviors that you use for self-medication. And it's not pretty, but it doesn't have to be because the, the line in the sand is not picking up the food, not picking up the drink, not picking up the dice, not picking up the relationship and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, with trauma, there's a whole separate package, but suffice it to say that there's another route to remedy trauma that is looking at a neurological route as well as a talk therapy route. Um, and, and also the support programs, whether they be, um, spiritually based, religiously based, 
or or not you know um, spiritually or religiously mm-hmm. based twelve step programs, um, uh, smart recovery or what have you. Right. They all have in common um, a herd. And let me just explain something very quickly, hopefully. In my experience, one of the, uh, excuse the pun, magic sauce with uh, with recovery is being in a herd of zebras. And if if you're in a herd of zebras um, and you stay in the middle of the herd, you'll have longevity. Because in the wild, the zebras that have the longest lifespans are the ones that stay in the middle. The ones that drift off to the edge of the herd get picked off by the lions, a.k.a. addiction. So no matter what your herd is, you need the support, especially in early recovery, of people that have the same stripes as you do so right. that you can do together what you can't do alone. That is a definition of spirituality. Yes, right. Uh, I would like to talk about two things you mentioned in the book, which are really really, I think, integral to at least my recovery program. I can speak to that. And that is the acronym SMURF, spirituality, meditation, exercise, rest, and a food plan. And I've got all those in my recovery. So talk about that Mm -hmm. as you uh, talk about recovery. When when I um, work with patients or work with people who are in the early stages of wanting a better life, by letting go of their addiction du jour, I tell them that if, if you can, if you can um, devise a checklist that's very simple to remember while you're doing all these other things, it's a pretty good indicator you'll stay in recovery. And so what I had heard from recovering alcoholics was halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, meaning that those are setups or, or triggers that could increase the probability of your wanting a drink. With eating disorders and food addiction, I found Smurf um, uh, a better checklist. So I'll explain what they are in, in, as brief as I can. Okay. It's spirituality, meditation, exercise, rest, and food plan. And I found that it covers the three legs of the stool, the physical healing, the emotional healing, and the spiritual healing. So spirituality could be whatever you want it to be. It could include or exclude religious beliefs. It's cultivating a reliance and a belief in something other than just yourself, non-reliance on willpower. Could be a group of people, could be a God of your understanding, could be nature, whatever it is. Sorry for the ambiguity, but I don't define it for people. They define it for themselves. That's right. Meditation is a discipline. When I started out trying to do that because of monkey mind and the spinning wheel, it would be torturous to do two minutes. I do 30 minutes a day for the last umpteen years without it being a discipline. (laughs) You do it, and it's like working out in a gym, although I'd rather do meditation than work out in a gym. But anyway, um, it's muscle memory. It's the same neurotransmitters and rewiring in your brain as you're doing with your neuromuscular system. You build muscle, which means you build a part of your body called the prefrontal cortex, which is what was missing in your addiction. I won't go into it, but it makes you more patient. It makes you uh, more mature, and it makes you able to do judgment, decision-making, and such um, uh, uh, in a better 
yeah, a it, healthy it way. It quiets your mind, and then yeah. you've got rest yeah. and food plan. And inside, and... It, it has a lot of benefits. Yes. Just do it. <laughs> yes, just, and, just do it. Uh, I do it. <laughs> exercise doesn't mean being Lance Armstrong or riding 40 miles on your bike. It means walking. It means yes. whatever you're you're coming to the table with, start to move. Walk for 20 minutes. Move. Your body needs to be taken care of by movement. And it also can balance out stress. If you have a lot of mental stress, exercise, yin-yang, balances out the mental stress. So um, a rest is a balance between work and play. And food, as we've been talking about for the better part of the last hour, is eating healthy. If yeah. you could check those things off in a 24-hour period as having done them, not felt them, you right. will be on that path where you're not deviating from the tenets of recovery. Right. Yeah, this is this is part of how I have um, stayed recovered for over six years from and then kept my 70 pounds off and living this life, and that is every one of these things. And the next thing I want to go to is what you say in the book, knowing and doing are two different things, and you talk about constructive living. And in my recovery program, we call it an action plan. Right. Um, but we, we develop, you say, we develop the di discipline of doing what needs doing despite right. feeling and intrusive thoughts. Uh, we're moving toward the solution. We gain freedom from our habitual yep. patterns and reclaim our lives. So talk about constructive living. We have to do this. We have to get to work once we surrender right. to the powerlessness of the disease. Constructive living is credited to um, a, a fellow that I became friends with. His name is David Reynolds, and he teaches psychiatry out at UCLA Davis, um, the medical school. And I met him in 1987. And the reason I note him and say this is important is because my training was to put a feelings as the holy grail. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about your mother? How did you feel when? Not that feelings aren't important, but they became the holy grail in all kinds of therapies. Then the therapy du jour became cognitive behavioral therapy. Still has a utility. I'm not, I'm not saying it, it, it's not efficacious, but it's not the holy grail. You have limited control over controlling your feelings, and you have limited control over controlling your thoughts. But you do have control over what you do, except for physiological processes, like you can't stop your heart. The reason I say this is because people um, that I've come across tend to overanalyze and underdo, overthink and underdo. And there's an implied contract that's not often spoke about in therapy. Fix how I feel or fix how I think, and then I will, you fill in the blank, I'll stop drinking, I'll put a bathing suit on, I'll exercise, think how I think, feel how I feel, and you'll get nowhere. Recovery is about knowing what to do and doing it, not about fixing your feelings as a precondition to doing something. It's that simple. So most therapies put the cart before the horse. In recovery, which is astonishing, and in 12-step parlance is after third step for people working a 12-step program, it's a doing process, not a thinking or feeling process. So anything, if you think back, that you've put a precondition of feeling motivated or feeling comfortable or not feeling anxious to do something, you've just chased your tail around. If you wait to feel motivated to exercise, you'll die in a sedentary bed. So 
Um, you can't recover until you put down the alcohol. You can't recover until you put down the food. You can't recover until you do the deal. And I see it, unfortunately, too often. People stop, but they don't stay stopped because they don't work a recovery program. They work a diet program. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a diet. This is about recovery. And like you say, we surrender to the powerlessness of it, the craving and the physical allergy and, and, and all of that. Correct. But then we get to work. You know, this is a this is uh, this is a recovery for people that want it, not necessarily that, that need it. You know that you've got to want this really badly. And I want this life. You know, your your clients want a better life. And that's that, what recovery is. The soundbite. And a lot of these programs have sound bites that are very valuable. One of my favorites is faith will move mountains, but bring a shovel. Yeah, <laughs> I've got that one too. Like, you you know, God can move mountains or higher power can move mountains, right. but you better bring a wheelbarrow is, is my version of it. But yep. you, you say, and, and we as we wrap up here, um, we'll ask just a couple more questions. Um, you say the whole idea of recovery is not... Uh, for it to become your life, but enable you to have a life. And mm -hmm. uh, as uh, we have, you know, people that are listening, um, you know, it, it, this is not easy, but it's but it, but it's worth it uh, to really look at like how we're using food, uh, the addiction of it, and then once we put it down, deal with the things in our life. And we don't need to look outside ourselves. A therapist is going to fix me. A therapist is going to tell me what to do. Right. I came into recovery with a, all the textbooks and said, okay, this is a final. I'll pass the test. And then I go on. Mm -hmm. That's not the way this works. Right. Uh, we have to get up and do it every day. So as we, as we kind of wrap up, what would you say about the life that's possible. And if anyone's listening that may have a problem with food uh, that may think that they may be different than a normal person has dieted over and over and continues to go back. What would you say about recovery into that person? Yeah, I, I think what's important to hear is letting go of trying to control your body through a diet. Mm. Recovery is about finding a, a sane relationship with healthy food, the Smurf piece, but basically don't focus on the number on a scale. Don't measure your progress by a number or what you see in the mirror. Doing the deal is working a recovery program. And if you do that and you talk to people that have really done that, they will tell you that their life is much more than they would have wished for or hoped for in trade for that effort. Beyond their wildest dreams is the phrase that's used in recovery speak. Mm -hmm. And there is a notion called the promises in 12-step literature that although the language may be a little different than 2023, the concepts are totally true. Yeah, they are. The promises do come true, although I don't, I didn't think so at first, I, you know, but they've all come true and I will do anything to hang on to this, so. Dr. Marty Lerner, thank you for joining me today. Uh, My pleasure. Heads Milestones in Recovery. Your website is uh, milestonesprogram.org. And it's been delightful to host you today on uh, Esther's sure. podcast, The Infect School. It. And I'm glad, you, I'm glad you joined me. And it's, it's been great. I hope listeners got a lot out of it. And I think they have. Great. Thank you, Susan. 
This is the Food Addiction Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and learned more about this disease. We hope you will rate and write a review on this podcast and share it with others. If you or someone you know is suffering from the disease of food addiction, there is a solution. The various food addiction recovery programs are available and listed on the website, theinfactschool.com. Or if you would like to know more about how to get certified in treating food addiction, the school is accepting applications now for its next training beginning in September 2023. Go to theinfactschool.com. That's I-N-F-A-C-T school.com to learn more.